First, a gentle warning. This podcast can be a hard listen at times and includes themes of violence, mental distress and racism. It's something you might need to consider before listening. Early on Sunday, 3rd of May 2015, Police Scotland's control room starts to receive calls. Hello, there's a man with a knife, a black man on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy. Police arrive at the scene and within minutes, Sheikh Ubayo is down on the ground. After being restrained by up to six officers, he stops breathing. Many details of what happened that morning are in dispute. His devastated family are still searching for answers. They want to know what role race played in Sheku's death. They claim he is Scotland's George Floyd. Sheku died here in Scotland and I am fighting, we as a family are fighting for changes to happen in Scotland. No family should suffer the way that we are suffering. Police refute this. Now a public inquiry, launched in May 2022, is trying to find out what really happened. Its purpose is to seek to ascertain the truth and to that purpose, I am fully committed. Welcome to Sheku Bio, The Inquiry, a podcast series from The Ferret. Episode 4, The Death Message. I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor and journalist for The Ferret. And I'm Tamiwa Fullerinshaw, a freelance writer and editor. Welcome back to our podcast about the Sheku Bayou Inquiry, which is investigating one of the highest profile deaths in Scottish police custody to date. It's now eight years since Sheku's loved ones were told by police that he had died. That trauma, they say, was compounded by how the news was broken to them. They claim that a catalogue of errors, miscommunications and lies within hours of Sheku's death led to a total breakdown of trust that can't be regained. Police, meanwhile, admit errors were made, but insist the intention was never to misrepresent the truth. So in this episode, we'll hear what Sheku's partner, Colette, and his older sister, Caddy, have told the inquiry about how the news was broken to them. And we'll also find out what Police Scotland has to say about the decisions made in the hours following the tragic events on the 3rd of May. If you've not listened to the first three episodes of our series about Hearing One, we suggest you go back to those first. But for now, let's go back to the Fife town of Kirkcaldy on the morning of 3rd of May 2015. It's about 7.30am on Sunday morning, and Sheku's partner, Colette Bell, is staying at her mum Lorraine's house along with her three-month-old baby boy. She's close to her mum, so when Sheku goes out with friends, like he did last night, she stays over with her new baby. But this morning she hears not from Sheku, but his friend Zahid. Here's what she told the inquiry about the call. I remember receiving the phone call and I'm sounding quite panicked on the phone. Um, and he was kind of stuttering, trying to say what he was trying to say, and he had said... Um, Nothing to worry about, um, everything's okay, I'm okay, um, but Sheikh's attacked me and I had said, 
what, what do you mean? Why? What, what's going on? He was like, um, don't don't worry, um, I'm all right, um, but I just wanted you to know and I don't want you to go home. She's immediately worried, she says, because these two friends are like brothers. They don't fight. And Sheik, as she calls her partner, is never violent. He's kind, laid back, always happy. What can be going on? She wakes her mum to tell her, hands over the baby, dresses hurriedly and drives to her nearby home on Aaron Crescent, 15 minutes away, looking for Sheik. As soon as she gets there, she knows something isn't right. For a start, the door's unlocked. So I remember opening the door and I'm kind of shouting Sheik and I'll go into the living room and I'm shouting him um, and as I come out of the living room and look straight on, look straight onto the kitchen and the back door was open, the kitchen door. There's coats um, in front of our sink on the floor um, and there was fridge magnets all over the floor and out into the garden, which was really strange. Um, and then I remember running upstairs shouting on Sheik to find him. In the bedroom, the small television and other bits and pieces are on the floor and she remembers wondering what's happened. She tries to call him. I hear his phone ringing in the kitchen um, and his phone is in the corner of the kitchen on the floor and I just started panic straight away. She phones her mum and then calls Zahid again. She's taken aback by how concerned he is for her safety. Still, she gets back in her car to drive around the streets to see if she can spot Sheku, but he's nowhere to be seen. She calls her mum a second time and it's her mum who suggests Colette should call the police. Here's the call she made at 8.36am. I received a phone call from uh, my boyfriend's best friend saying that um, that he's beating him up like really, really bad and that um, he's scared for his safety and I've gone home and my back door's wide open and my kitchen's trashed and all my boyfriend's stuff, like his jacket and his phone's in the house and he's missing. I don't... And um, his best friend's like worried in case he's going to hurt somebody else. It's totally out of character for him. As Colette drives back to her mum's, she's less than a mile away from the A&E department of Victoria Hospital, where staff are working to save Sheku's life. In less than half an hour, he will be pronounced dead. And back at Kirkcaldy Police Station, the officers who restrained him have been told to stand down from duty. They're waiting together in the canteen, unsure of what will happen next. Upstairs in the station, Detective Inspector Colin Robson has returned from Hayfield Road, where Sheku was restrained by police. He's in a briefing with Graham Dursley, a detective sergeant, along with three detective constables. All four have been brought in from Leavenmouth, a nearby station, to provide extra resource. We'll tell you more about the investigating team and the revolving cast of officers and senior figures involved next time. But early that morning, the top priority for this newly forming team was to find out the identity of the black male taken to hospital after being restrained by police. All they know is his condition is critical. And it's while they're gathered that Colette's call, the one we just heard, comes in. Here's what DS Dursley told the inquiry about her call. Round about this time, there was the linked call card that come in where um, Mr Bay's partner had called in reporting concerns for him. So what I do remember was thinking this could be linked and this needs to be actioned quickly. The three DCs at the briefing, 
they're called Parker, Mitchell and Clayton, are dispatched to Colette's house, arriving at about nine o'clock. Colette arrives with her mother and baby boy shortly after. Inside the house, officers see pictures of Sheku and start to become increasingly convinced that the man from Hayfield Road and Colette Bell's missing partner are one and the same. Here's what DC Mitchell remembers. From what we were told, uh, it was a black male, uh, sort of big build, and uh, and also the fact that the phone and the keys were, were sitting there as well. Were kind of, there was a few things that were kind of put together, I thought, well, this may well be the, be the same guy. The fact that there'd been a disturbance in the house as well, the door had been left open, it just was kind of seen more and more likely that this was, a, this, unfortunately, the same guy. DC Parker steps outside to update DS Dursley, who's back at the station. It's then he's told the man, who we know as Sheku, has died. Dursley asks the officers to seize and secure the house for police forensics and to bring Colette back to the police station. In evidence, officers say it's normal to seize a home in these circumstances. They don't need a warrant if they have Colette's consent, which, they say, she was happy to give. But Colette told the inquiry she wasn't clear about what was happening or why. She remembers feeling confused and frightened. It was clear that officers knew more than they were telling her. And yet, when she asked questions, they just kept repeating that they had just come on shift and knew nothing, that she should come down to the police station to find out more. Um, I think they had said something like, you'll need to get some things together because this could be the beginning of a crime scene. And that really took me aback. I was shocked. And I think it made me worry even more that they were saying that. I think I was just thinking worst case scenario um, because I do remember whilst we were getting a bag together going upstairs into the bedroom and I was feeding. Sorry. I remember my mum was looking out the window and she was saying, they're covering the garden um, with polythene. And I just remember seeing shit's dead. Colette drives with her mum and her 15-week-old son to the station, where they are ushered into a police interview room with hard chairs and a table. DC Parker has by now been briefed by DS Dursley. In this small, bare room, he delivers the news of her partner's death. In police speak, this is known as the death message. But, under instruction from superiors, he does not tell her that Sheku had been stopped by police immediately before his death. In Colette's evidence, she says she is told, there's no easy way of saying this. There's been a body found that matches your partner's description. That phrase, body found, is a striking one in the circumstances. She is asked by Angela Graham KC how sure she is that that is what she heard. Here's how she responds. I would swear on my children's life. No ups, downs, maybes. I didn't misunderstand anything. I remember those words being told to me like it was yesterday and there is no hesitation in my mind that they said there's been a body found that matches your partner's description. In her statement to the inquiry, read to her by Graham, she remembers how upset she was but once she'd calmed down enough to speak, she had so many questions. What happened to him? Has he collapsed? Was he wounded? Was he stabbed? Where was he found? 
I remember asking them because I remember wanting to know what happened. And I thought, well, he's not just dropped down dead. Like, why is he, how is he dead? What's happened? Um, and I remember them just saying a passerby had found them dead on the street. What Colette understands from this is that her partner, Sheku, has been murdered. Eight years on, the inquiries trying to understand why she was not told the truth about what had happened. Under questioning, DC Parker denies that he told her Sheku was found dead or that he was found by a passerby. All I can remember from then, from as, as we know, it was quite a short statement, a very bland one, as, as I've said. Um, her initial reaction, she obviously was extremely upset um, and kept saying, it's not him, it's not him, why do you think it's him? So uh, that was when I give a, an explanation as to why we believed it to be Shekubayu at that time. So I give her a rough description, but nothing was discussed where how he was found, because in effect, we didn't know that either. I didn't know that, Andy didn't know that, so we, we would be pretty much giving information that we weren't party to, so no one said anything about a passerby. He is, he claims, just passing the message on as instructed and is not authorised to say more. But while giving evidence, D.S. Dursley shakes his head as he admits police got the message wrong. What would have been wrong, however, in sharing with Colette Bell that Mr. Bayou had been alive when the police arrived at Hayfield Road, but then he'd become unconscious when the police were there? I'm trying to understand why you wouldn't mention any contact. I think we could have, we should have. At that time, we, we just didn't, we didn't know how much information to give and, and what to give and what was going to be accurate and what wasn't. But I actually think, what's right? <laughs> what, what should we have, we have said to them? Um, and I look at that and think, we should have said there was police contact. And the, and the answer to that is, I don't know what happened. And you know, and just be, and just be honest and tell them that. Eh? And looking back now, how do you feel about that? Not great. <laughs> it's not nice. This is Colette's take on what she was told by DC Parker. How does it make you feel to know that that information was withheld from you? Disgusted. You know that the police have been in contact with Sheik and you know that he's died right on the back of being in contact with the police. You know that he's not been stabbed, you know that he's not been hit by a car, you know that he's died after being restrained and you're lying. Police, however, maintain they did not lie to Colette, but were working with the information available. Ten minutes after receiving what officers acknowledged was life-changing news, Colette was asked to give a statement. Officers said it was made clear to her she didn't have to, that she could stop at any point. She remembers saying she didn't want to make a statement. She just wanted to see Sheck. She says she said that again and again. Officers told her, she says, that if she gave a statement then they'd see about getting her to see Sheku. So in the end, she agrees. In evidence, officers deny that they said this, claiming it wouldn't be in their power. She thought she was providing important information that might help them find out what happened to her partner, that might catch his murderer. What difference would it have made if she'd known he'd died after police contact? I don't think I would have sat in the police station for hours giving a statement on the back of... um check dying, having come into contact with the police. Why is that? If the police were the last ones to see Sheck alive, it was fine until they got there. Why am I then going to sit in the police station and give them information when they've hurt Sheck? 
the officers admit that while Colette provided valuable information that helped them piece together the timeline of events, a full statement could, or should, have been taken days later. But she does give a statement, and it's then that she passes on the details of Caddy Johnson, Shaker's sister. By 11.30am, Caddy Johnson's name appears in the minutes of the first Gold Group meeting, attended by senior officers including Assistant Chief Constable Ruri Nicholson, Chief Superintendent Gary McEwen and Chief Superintendent Leslie Bowl. Also present was Detective Superintendent Pat Campbell, the senior investigating officer at this stage. But more than three hours later, Caddy and her family have still not heard from police. They have no idea that anything has happened to their brother. Asked about this, Pat Campbell claims there were issues locating family liaison officers who police wanted to use to break the news. But he also admits this delay shouldn't have happened. It's crucial that you get that information to the family as soon as possible. Um, and in general, the system works very, very well. We do get the, that message out very quickly to the family. It's one of the significant regrets I have about being an SIO on that particular day, about the delay with the message going to the family. It is not until about 3pm that DC Mitchell and Parker arrive at Caddy's front door. She was upstairs when the officers arrived. Her husband Addy called her into the living room, where her daughter was playing with the new toys she got for her seventh birthday the day before. Her birthday party had been held the previous evening. That's the one we told you about in the first episode, which Sheku came to before heading out with his friend Zahid. Addy sent the kids upstairs and the officers introduced themselves. Here's Caddy. They said to me, there's no easy way to say, but Sheku has passed away. And at that stage, I just broke down. I was upset and started crying. Addy, meanwhile, is asking questions. How did he die? What happened? And here's what the family heard. They, they were saying that um, they were looking for two guys. And the other thing again, they said he was found lying on the road and they called an ambulance and on the way to the hospital he died. You know, we just had different stories during that time when they told us that he had passed. Does Colette know? That was one of Caddy's first thoughts. The officers assured her she did. They stayed for about 10 minutes and just before they left, Caddy called Colette. She came straight over with her mum and the baby. Meanwhile, officers call their immediate boss, D.S. Dursley, to report back. He tells the inquiry they are reeling from the experience of passing on a message so devoid of detail. He has already told the inquiry police got the death message wrong when it was passed to Colette. What does he say about this one? We should have given them more. What sort of information, looking back now, do you think you should have shared with them? Very similar to what I said in relation to... um, telling Colette earlier on that there had been police contact, there had been calls to the police and, and even by that time we might have known a bit more information, more specifics about what has taken place so um, yeah I think that could have been could have been delivered at that time. That day he claims he tries to put things right. He crosses the station to where management are based, knocks on the door and explains his concerns. He's told by Pat Campbell that someone will get back to him and later that management will meet the family. The officers are sent back to the Johnsons, this time to explain that their gaffer, Chief Superintendent Gary McCune, will come to talk to them. 
While there, Mitchell's phone ring. It's DS Dursley. You're not going to like this, he says. And he reads him an updated statement, handwritten by Campbell, that management have now agreed to be passed on. It says, following an incident this morning in the Hayfield Road area of Kirkcaldy, officers from Police Scott have been attempting to arrest Shekubayo, during which time he has become unconscious, conveyed to hospital by SAS, that's the Scottish Ambulance Service, and despite best efforts by medical staff, died shortly after 9am this morning. Caddy remembers watching DC Mitchell read this from his small black notebook with a red trim, but she remembers different wording. They told us that Sheku was involved in a forceful arrest and during that time he became unconscious and died in hospital. That's what we were told. Colette says it wasn't until Gary McEwen arrived that the word forceful was used. But whenever it was, it makes Caddy, who is a nurse, wonder if his airways may have been obstructed. It's something she claimed she asked DC Parker about. He also had a nursing background. By 6pm, Chief Superintendent McEwen has arrived. He knew Caddy's husband, who served as a lay police advisor, both personally and professionally. With him was D.I. Nicholas Shepherd. Friends and family who had attended last night's party were gathered at the house by that time. McEwen took the lead, but he didn't seem sure of the information he was giving them, according to Colette. Caddy and Colette both remember he initially said Sheku had a machete before revising his statement. Maybe it was a blade. It might be a knife. He told them, Colette and Caddy say, that Sheku punched and stamped on a policewoman and that pepper spray and batons were then used and he was restrained. Colette told the inquiry she will never forget that meeting. It was, she told them, as if she stood still while the room around her started to spin. She remembers shouting, you won't get away with this, as she left the room with her baby. McEwen has not yet given evidence. But that's not Chief Inspector Nicola Shepherd's memory. Here's what she told Junior Counsel Laura Thompson when questioned about that meeting. Do you recall there being any mention, either by um, Chief Superintendent McEwen or by yourself, of a machete? I don't recall that. Do you recall there being any mention of a forceful arrest? No. Do you recall any mention of Shekubayo punching a policewoman or falling to the ground and him stamping on her? No, no. In amongst the commotion, the family grappled to find facts to hold on to. Here's Caddy on how difficult that was, and the way trust started to slip away. We started to feel suspicious. We started to feel that, um, are we really getting the real facts? Are these true? Is it the true story we are getting? Is it made up or what? Because how can you come and tell me I've lost a loved one and you don't know exactly what to say to me? how to to tell me how he died. We deserve to know the truth. We deserve to know how my brother died. And they came to me at about three o'clock. That's a long time for information to have gathered for them to come and give it to me. But yet that wasn't relayed to me when they came to my house. Instead, we were having all this different information and that's really got us upset 
and we lost faith. In her evidence to the inquiry, she wonders, if that trust had not been lost, might things have been different? Might this inquiry not have been needed at all? How was your connection with the police at that time? There was, there was no connection. There was no connection after that. Later, officers from Independent Policing Body, the Police Investigations and Review Commissioner, Park, came to see the family, including someone Caddy understood to be a family liaison officer. They asked her to come to the hospital to identify the body. But she said no. It was late and she wanted to wait for her mum, who was arriving from London the next morning, to allow her to identify her son. Meanwhile at her mum's, Colette wondered why she'd not heard anything more from police when she'd made it so clear that she wanted to see Sheku. Neither were aware that the post-mortem had already been arranged for 2pm the next day, and as a result, neither saw his body before then. In evidence, Pat Campbell confirmed that due to the availability of pathologists, the timing of the post-mortem was set in stone. He insisted he pass information on to Park, whose role it should have been to inform the family. Park officers have yet to give evidence to the inquiry. Meanwhile, the family had instructed a high-profile human rights lawyer, Amar Anwar. It was while sitting in their lawyer's office on Tuesday 5th of May that the family heard that the post-mortem had taken place without their knowledge. It was then too that they discovered police were making inquiries with the Sierra Leone Embassy in London about sending his body back there. Sheku's father had been a prominent figure in Sierra Leone. His father's last position was as the secretary to the president. But Sheku had lived in the UK since he was 12 years old. He had lived in Kirkcaldy since he was 17 and his partner, children and family were in Scotland. The plan was halted but, Colette told the inquiry, it felt to her at the time like they were trying to take his body away from those who loved him. When Caddy finally got to see her brother, the post-mortem had been done and she was only able to view him from behind glass. Here's what she told the inquiry about the devastating impact of that. What benefit would the family have personally from having that moment to view the body? You know, we just wanted to see him. We just wanted to touch him, you know. We just wanted to have that last connection with him before. I think we would have some peace in our minds, you know just seeing him and touching him for the last time and saying our goodbyes to him. Um, but we didn't have that opportunity to do that. Colette didn't want to see his body after the post-mortem, didn't want to remember her partner that way. Uh, I think because I didn't get to say goodbye, I didn't get to see him, but I often find myself thinking, maybe they did get it wrong, maybe it wasn't actually him. I often have nightmares and things about it, um, that I'll be walking down a beach on holiday and Sheck will be coming towards me and I think it's just I didn't have that closure and I didn't have that time to say goodbye. The ferret contacted Perk, but they declined to comment. In his opening statement to the inquiry, Police Scotland Chief Constable Ian Livingston offered his condolences to Sheku's family. He pledged that police would learn lessons and strive for improvement. But a spokesperson said Police Scotland did not want to comment further. The impact of what happened has also had ripples right across the community. And that's what we'll be looking at next time as we explore the lines of the police inquiry made in those initial days. 
Find all four episodes of Shaker Bio, The Inquiry, presented by me, Karen Goodwin, and me, Tomiwa Fullerinshaw, at theferret.scot or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ferret is an investigative co-op run by and for its members. We believe good journalism changes things. To make this podcast, we've spent hours listening to all of the evidence so we can summarise it for you, our listeners. And we need your support to do more. Join us at theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and get three months free with the code PODCASTOFFER. This podcast was written and produced by Karen Goodwin. Research by Tommy Waffler and Shaw. Recording, editing and sound design by Helena Rafai. Original music by Alan Bryden.